Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the um, the gin makers in Hall Seven are some of the highest perfectionists in Birmingham, so they will, well, we won't rush them as they serve you up the fantastic array of alcohol we've got here. Um, thank you for joining us for this um, spectator um, event sponsored by Palantir on how to can Britain fight tomorrow's wars. Except the fascinating thing about this is that tomorrow's wars are fast becoming today's wars. For, for about, you know, since, um, I, when Liam Fox here was Defence Secretary, he was very, very passionate about the way that technology is completely transforming the way that we regard conflicts, the threats we can expect, and how we should expect to retaliate. Um, I think when Putin invaded Ukraine, um, he imagined that technology wasn't that big a factor. And what we've seen there has been described as a, a 20th century invasion facing a 21st century response. Um, we have, at, um, I think, The Spectator is the only publication in Britain to, to employ a Ukrainian refugee. Svetlana Mernetsch, um, she's a brilliant journalist, award-winning journalist, came here as a refugee. She writes a, a newsletter for us, which if you don't get, you should spectator forward slash Ukraine to sign up to it. Um, and she used a very... I learned so much from talking to her. Because um, us journalists like us, we, we write about these faraway countries of which we never visited all the time. And it's actually great to sit next to somebody from there who knows exactly these areas that we're talking about. And she talks nonstop about military technology. To her, this is the matter between life or death. Um, she's got family over there. This is the, ma the difference between they're having a future or they're not. And the phrase she uses is that what we're seeing now is a combination of Ukrainian courage and Western technology. Um, by that, she's not referring not only to the way that Elon Musk personally contributed, you know, internet for these guys, things we never quite imagined to happen. But we can see if anybody thought that um, that modernization of, of warfare was, or digitization of it, was an abstract concept, those um, we can now see in Ukraine just what a difference the right technology can make. Um, now, of course, we are now facing pretty delicate times. Right now, the Ukrainian, that Ukrainian courage in Western technology is scoring victory after victory in the occupied territories. Putin is running out of um, people, he is cornered, and he's making mutterings or implications that he might press the nuclear button. If he did, how would we retaliate? What would escalation look like in this, um, in this day and age? Now, we have, so this is basically, and if there is war, what, it is on, it was on, what we know for sure is it wouldn't look like war as we've known it. It would look like something very different. Michael Clark here, one of our panelists, you ran Rusi for a couple of years, has said it could mean an attack on national infrastructure, inside transport systems, health systems, or air traffic control. That's the sort of thing which we ought to prepare ourselves against. These are threats which um, Dr. Fox was talking about when he was Defence Secretary. And um, James Hippie, Defence Minister to my left, is sort of former, is, um, uh, has, has been in this sphere now, Foreign and Defence, for quite some time. Um, a couple of years ago, he advised the military to think the ridiculous when it comes to capabilities. Think le less like blo Blockbuster, he said, and more like Netflix. Tomorrow's special forces, he said, aren't going to be people crawling through the dirt with knives in their teeth, but they're going to be planting malware into the heart of enemy servers. So this is the territory, you know, we're talking about tomorrow's wars because, um, God willing, we have not fought one yet and we're not likely to in the future. But this is, we see in front of us today, warfare today. So the big question for anybody running any sort of military is, is Britain ready? Are we, have we properly imagined the threats we face? 
Do we have the capabilities that we can respond to them? And ideally, how can we stop ourselves getting into that situation in the first place? So I'd like to, to op ask the panel to make some opening remarks, and then we'll... This is such an... In uh, I can already see some faces I recognise in the, in the audience here. One of the things I love about Spectator events is the quality of our audience. You guys will ask way better questions than are going through my head right now. So um, we'll get some opening comments, then throw over to you, and we'll make as much progress as, as we can in the next, um, in the next hour. So, um, Michael, why don't you start? Oh, okay. Um, thank you, Fraser. Yes, I, I thought as the... Um, th thank you for the invitation to speak on a distinguished panel like this, and I, I thought as a, uh, a way of offering some um, analytical perspective on it, I'm not a policymaker, I've never been in government, I've always been an observer of, of government, I've been hanging around the bazaars of Westminster and Whitehall for 20-odd years. Some people, some people say, what's it like? And I say, well, it's like being a, a piano player in a brothel, really. Um, you sort of, you know, you, you, you're, you're there, you keep your eyes open, your mouth shut, and you observe what's going on, but you are somehow complicit with it. You can't get away from that. Um, so, analytically... What an analogy, Michael. I've just worked out that sums up my yeah, life. I'm, I'm it's no, quite a depressing thought. Yes, I'm now speaking mainly about Parliament. Um, that was the poorest hero, though. Those days have gone now, I have to tell you, right? We're, we're, all, we're, all, we're all proper church-going... Yeah. Upright people now, you know. Indeed. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> moving on, sorry. Yes, but yes, moving on. And um, analytically, I, I think there's a certain, a certain number of, of assumptions that we always make, pretty good ones, and there are some challenges to those assumptions. So just in brief, one assumption that we've always maintained is that we maintain full-spectrum forces, the ability to do a bit of everything, even at very low numbers. And, of course, that becomes a challenge when the numbers become absolute numbers but get, get so low when you've only got two available aircraft, say, for AWACS, for Airborne Warning and Control, instead of 20 uh, or even 12, only two or three or whatever it is. Um, so full-spectrum forces. Second assumption we always make, and it's a good one, is that the United States forces are our model. Um, that what the U.S. is doing is probably what modern militaries will need to do because they are the trendsetter for all the pros and cons of the, the U.S. military. And sometimes when we, when we decide what we need over the 20 or 30 years that I've been looking at it, um, we say, well, what will the U.S. take seriously? Um, you know, so the U.S. will needs to take our Navy seriously if we've got to carry a battle group, if we can deploy something like that. The U.S. will take us seriously if we can deploy a proper combat division and so on. Um, and so sometimes that assumption becomes a bit internalized, a bit, a bit incestuous, but it's not a bad assumption to make that we want our military to be able to fit into America's military for all sorts of good reasons. And the third assumption, I think, is that I always say we're the 10% ally, which is to say, in orders of magnitude, we... Uh, we, we spend about a tenth of what the Americans spend on defense. Actually, last time I looked, it was about 75 or 8%. Um, but we, let's say, orders of magnitude, we spend about a tenth, we get about a tenth for it. Our force is about a tenth the size. And we reckon that that tenth, if used properly, can give us some strategic leverage on what happens in situations that we're going to. It gives us some strategic say in the outcome. Well, sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And many people would argue that in Iraq and Afghanistan, we, we played our, our part, we played it as well as we could, um, and we did it pretty well in tactical senses, but we didn't have much strategic input. That's a, a, an arguable point. And the fourth assumption, finally, is that there's a more modern one, that we need to adjust, we need to get into the 2030s, but actually we've got time. 
that, yes, we know that, uh, that, that it'll take time to adjust, it will take time to bring more systems on, but actually we've got until the end of this decade to get it right. And the, the force that most needs that time is the Army, the Air Force and the Navy recapitalized about 10 years ago. In effect, the Navy around the ships it worked out in 20, 2008, 2010 it needed. The Air Force around the, uh, the, the, the main strike fighters that they've got now and the, uh, the other systems and the, the new Tempest coming on stream, we hope, in the, is the fifth generation. So they know what they're, lo they're looking at. The Army doesn't really know what it's going to look like because it was the last to recapitalize and it's, it's got all the big questions still ahead of it. So those are the, the assumptions. They're not bad assumptions at all, but they're the erstwhile assumptions. But, of course, we're challenged by, one is, um, do we fall below the threshold of strategic credibility? You know, because our numbers are low, do we find ourselves in situations where our forces are very welcome and they do a very good job for all the reasons we know, but actually they don't make a strategic difference? And I would argue that we've fallen below that threshold in certain areas and we risk falling below that threshold across the board. Um, that's a, a real challenge. I mean, to, you know, to, to put it clearly, I mean, if we had to, if, if the minister had to deploy our combat division you know, next month in a, in a high-tempo um, war in Europe, very unlikely, but if you did... We could lose it in a whole afternoon, um, simply because of lack of air cover. Now, that's, there's, there's ways of addressing that, and there's plans to address it, but those plans won't come to fruition for quite a few years. But what's being what the, the argument now, and the arguments made by the Chief of General Staff, um, uh, Patrick Sanders, he said, we've got to mobilise. We've got to be prepared now, he says, to go onto the continent, prepared to fight the war we aim to deter not just go on the continent as a presence. We've got to go onto the continent able, able, today, now, to fight the war we want to deter. And the fact is, no, we can't. That's what we should do, but no, we can't. Now, we hope we'll be able to do that pretty quickly, and the trajectory is upwards, and there's an awful lot of good things to say about defence. But we can't delude ourselves to the fact that we are somewhere behind the curve of what we, where we would like to be, where we should be. And then the final challenge, really, just to try and set the scene, is Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine war shows us how intensive modern warfare is between peer forces, not between one, uh, as it were, modern force and a guerrilla force or a, a, a poor force, but two peer forces. Very intensive. I mean, the Russians are firing off, in some cases, 20,000 artillery shells a day. Uh, the Ukrainians are firing off five or 8,000 artillery shells a day. Uh, we know that if we, f if we used up our ammunition at those sort of rates, we'd be out of it in three days. Um, the fact is, simple fact, and the fact is that the intensity is, is not surprising, but we didn't think we'd face that intensity in Europe for many years to come, but surprise, surprise, we're facing it now. And escalation is built into the crisis. As long as Putin won't back down, as long as he's made a strategic error of the most gross proportions in invading Ukraine in the first place, both those things are true, um, and he won't back down. Escalation is built into this crisis, and we're seeing escalation in all sorts of ways, geographically, rhetorically, by, by various threats and so on. And in that escalation, we have to accept that we're now facing a generational struggle in Europe. I mean, this war will go on, or this struggle will go on for a long time. I suspect there'll be a, an unstable ceasefire maybe next year, followed by a resumption of war. And this is the second Russian-Ukrainian war. The first one was 2014. This is the second. My guess is there'll be a third and probably a fourth in, over the next eight to ten years. And this is a generational struggle based on this uh, a Russian imperialism, a modern imperialism, that we now have to recognize and, and work with. It's not just Putin. It's the whole circle around Putin. It is the Russian elite and large sections of the Russian population. They may change that view, but that's the view they seem to have. And that restoration of some Russian imperial 
um, uh, conquests or Russian imperial influence is a, is a new fact of life. Um, and we've got to take that on board, and our military has got to, to in the words of the um, Chief of the General Staff, we've got to mobilise. And at, at times of, of uh, national uh, economic distress, that's always difficult, but the commitment has been made, 3% of our GDP by 2030, that's worth, should be worth about £150 billion. Uh, where it's going to come from, who knows? We can talk about that in question and answer if you want. But that is the trajectory, it's the right trajectory. Whether we can do it or not, I don't know. Crazy. Right. Um, Dr. Fox. Well, I, if I can start with um, a level before um, we get to Michael's uh, outlining of, of the actual practicalities, let's deal with the politics of that earlier part of this particular spectrum. The first thing that we need to do if we're going to be prepared for conflict is to understand, assess and recognise the threats that we face. And we have to do something that we have not been doing in recent years, and that is we have to stop substituting wishful thinking for critical analysis. <clears throat> Back in 2007, Putin set out at the Munich Security Conference his worldview. Now, it was a very bizarre worldview. It was that the fall of the Berlin Wall was a conscious act by the Soviet Union to spread openness across Europe. If you read his ambitions for Russia going ahead, you could have come to no other conclusion than this was a real danger that we faced. And yet, did we make that assumption? No, we didn't. And a year later, he was in Georgia, and we didn't act. And then he was in Crimea, and we sort of acted a little bit. And now we are where we are today in Ukraine. It was a serial failure of us to accept the realities of where we were. Now we can discuss why that would be, and a lot of that uh, is industrial uh, and economic reasons why we wanted to believe that Putin was okay, uh, because that made it okay to be more dependent, especially in Germany's case, um, on their fossil fuels. And I say this because it's pertinent not just looking back at Russia and Ukraine, but I believe that we're guilty today of the same wishful thinking when it comes to China, and even closer to home, we're guilty of wishful thinking when we look at the Balkans. Because Serbia has been uh, importing huge amounts of weaponry, complex weaponry from both China and Russia. And it's gone almost without comment. And certainly without us understanding the real risk of yet another conflict breaking out on, in continental Europe. So the first thing is we've got to be realistic and hard-headed in terms of our assessment and planning. The second is that we need to expand and concentrate on our uh, definitions of deterrence. Now, we all know that deterrent is, you know, it's the, it's the action of discouraging someone else out of uh, their potential actions uh, because of their fear of the consequences. We all know that. And yet, where did we apply that in that spectrum from Georgia, Crimea, and Ukraine? We waited until we got to Ukraine before we applied the economic sanctions, which could well have been a deterrent from further Russian action. Too little and too late. We've allowed deterrence to be too much about nuclear deterrence, the sort of end-stage deterrence, without thinking enough of how it comes earlier on in the political process. So we, again, we need to sharpen up, I think, our doctrine on that. Uh, Michael, I imagine we will talk a great deal about capability, our national capability, 
full-spectrum capability will be very expensive uh, going forward. The United States has an economy uh, of a scale that can probably support that type. And it's worth just remembering um, when people criticize the United States how dependent we are on the size of America's capability. Um, when I was Defence Secretary, along with um, Bill Gates and the United States, we used to do a double act at NATO. We used to call it good, uh, bad cop and worse cop. Um, <laughs> when we would berate our European allies for not spending enough um, on defence. But there's a limit to what even one of the world's biggest economies like the United Kingdom can actually have. And remember, our alliance with the United States is extremely important because the American budget is bigger than the next nine in the world combined. The American budget in defence is bigger than China, plus Russia, plus India, plus Britain, plus France, plus Germany, plus Saudi Arabia, plus Japan, plus South Korea. And I can't do that after a couple of gin and tonics. The, um, <laughs> the, um, and so the point I'm making is the alliance is absolutely crucial. When we're talking about whether we can fight wars in the future, we will not single-handedly be likely to be asked to do so, but we must play a full part in NATO. And it's not just about how much money we spend in NATO, it's what we spend money on in NATO and what uh, the interoperability within that is. I had a very nice experience in the United States just a few weeks ago, and I was talking about, um, and Michael will remember these battles that, that were fought about, about our, our carriers, and as Defence Secretary I wanted to maintain the two carriers. And I was talking about how it was great to have interoperability with the US Marine Corps and how I was very proud that the Queen Elizabeth sailed through the South China Sea um, with American F-35s on board. And after I spoke, this very nice lady came up to me, a little teary, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that. My, my son was one of those pilot, American pilots um, on that ship at the time. And then her husband came up and said, thank you for saying that. And her husband was Mike Pence. Whose <laughs> um, son uh, was on that? So we, that that aligns. It, it is it is really difficult for me to tell you how utterly vital, existential that alliance is with the United States. But if Europe doesn't pick up its spending and pick up its share of the bill, we can't depend on the American taxpayer continuing to fund European defence uh, uh, into the future. Um, and then, of course, we've got the, the real threats at, at the at the time. I used the phrase that we were already in the perpetual war of the invisible enemy. And that from that point on, in cyber warfare, from both state and non-state actors, we would be attacked, as we have been. Um, HMRC saw a 70% increase in cyber attack during the pandemic. We've seen it on the NHS. We've seen it on the MOD, other parts of government. We've seen it on our critical infrastructure. And you can assume that there's a lot more where that comes from. Uh, and we have to increase our cyber power, I know we'll come to discuss these things in more detail, but we must increase our cyber power and we must increase our investment in space. Because this idea that space is not militarized is a complete piece of nonsense. When the Chinese shot down their first satellite, it wasn't to prove to themselves that they could shoot down a satellite. It was to prove to us that they could shoot down a satellite. And uh, I remember saying to the uh, American Secretary of the Navy, you know, the Pacific Fleet is a wonderful thing, but not if it doesn't know where it is. And, and how many, or, or how, how big a part of your navy can, can actually navigate by sextant rather than GPS? Um, and all our technology, although it brings us advantages, brings us vulnerabilities as well. And we have to guard against those. So there are a whole range of areas. It's not just military capability. 
It is doctrine, it is politics, it is understanding foreign policy, it's assessing risks through intelligence effectively. It has to be a whole spectrum that we have if we're going to be successful in dealing with the threats that we will undoubtedly face because we're facing them already. Thank you, Liam. On the um, and James, I remember when you were, um, the, a couple of years ago, you were overseeing, I think, your MOD Defence and Security Accelerator, and you were putting money into a smart ship, um, talking about the, the, Liam's point there about ships not knowing where they are. And um, I think you, you said at the time that it was um, that the, the, the astonishing pace which threats are evolving um, required um, basic big questions about how AI and automation can support the armed forces in day-to-day life. How is that looking now? Can you say a little, little bit more? Because, because you, you've been spending a, a good chunk of your political career looking at, it takes a long, long time to modernise the military. How are we doing and what are our chances? Okay. Uh, thank you very much indeed for having me and I will try to get to that. I just wanted to um, start by just answering the question which, I, and I think the honest answer is ish. Um, we, uh, I think we've got a decent set of armed forces and I think Michael has set out um, pretty accurately actually where the shortcomings are. Um, there are a set of armed forces that have evolved to meet the challenges that we were seeking to address over the previous 20 years and when we re-emerge into an age of state-on-state -state, uh, competition with military peers, uh, we obviously need more and that's why it is timely to increase defence spending. More of what is the big question, and that ties into the question you just asked, Fraser, and that, that I will um, get to. But I think for those of you in the room who have a hope that the Prime Minister's very generous offer to defence will immediately bring with it a huge growth in the sort of frontline fighting echelon of our armed forces, uh, that is, Ben and I make a massive virtue of saying no because the risk that has been taken for 20 years, because of the nature of the things that we've been doing, countering non-peer threats in very deliberate, established campaigns in Iraq and Afghanistan, has allowed us to contract out all of the logistics. It's meant that our ammunition consumption rates have been entirely predictable and stockpiles have had risk taken against them. So the first priority in the MOD in response to all of this new money becoming available is more stockpiles, more critical enablers, better logistics, better signalers, more medics, all of the things that you need in order to be able to operate in higher threat environments in a more dynamic way, more persistently, and in more places at once. Um, there will be an argument for growing capability, but there will also be an argument for transforming capability. And that's because the scope of the conflict, the competition that our nation faces, is enormous. It's a breadth of domains. We've got pretty good Army, Navy, Air Force. But as Liam rightly says, without space control, you're in a lot of trouble. Cyber is uh, a domain that can impact on your route to war in the first place, your force generation. It can take you out of the fight before it even begins in many ways. And then it can be uh, catastrophic in the way that it can disrupt military operations thereafter. And then there's the competition and information domain. And I think one of the things that Putin was most surprised about back in January and February was how aggressive we and the Americans were willing to be in the information domain, the speed at which we would declassify highly sensitive intelligence in order to steal the narrative on his intended false flag operations uh, as part of his justification mm -hmm. for the route to war. Next, it's the breadth of 
um, and, and, and sorry, and, and, and within that, if you see cyberspace information alongside land, sea, and air, there's then a challenge about how you integrate. And that's where our sponsors have such an important role to play and companies like them. Because integrating across those domains is where you really bring to bear your technological advantage over your adversary. Mass v. Mass won't be what gives you the edge. It's the ability to integrate all domains to bring together, to synchronize military effect against your adversaries. Then there's the, the depth of the threat and its interconnectedness. We spent 20 years going after violent extremism. And I think the IR that we published a couple of years ago slightly made the mistake of thinking that violent extremism was over. Time to move on, get back to a hostile state threat. Well, actually, violent extremism is still there. It needs to be dealt with. Islamic State is on the march across Africa, and it is challenging the British interest in a number of places, and so it can't be ignored. Then there's the grey zone, which is a sort of space that, doesn't, that isn't military necessarily, but it is... It's there, and it's sub-threshold. It's like blowing up pipelines in the Baltic Sea, whoever did that. Uh, and, you know, and, and what does that mean, and how do you react to it? Um, and then th the other thing that is a concern is that when you look at a peer-on-peer -peer threat, you look at it in quite a 2D way. You say, well, if you travel west from here, you get to the Pacific and into the South China Sea at a potential point of confrontation with China. If you travel east from here, you reach the NATO frontier and you reach a point of potential competition with Russia. And what that ignores is that right now, day in, day out, the Western interest is being competed for and challenged across the global south. China is seeking to gain influence in South Pacific islands because if you want to control the Pacific, having the islands is a really important part of doing that. Nothing's changed since 1943, 1944. And so competing for our influence in Tonga and Fiji and Samoa is every bit as important as having a fleet that is capable of fighting in the Pacific alongside the Americans, similarly in the Caribbean and across, uh, and across Africa. And then, and this is the sort of um, final point uh, I'd make on the sort of breadth of things, there's the requirement for a breadth of government response. What we've been allowed to do since the end of the Cold War is to regard defence as quite a self-contained endeavour. The MOD will prosecute our campaigns against violent extremism. The MOD will make sure that we continue to be a good NATO ally. We will get nowhere, ladies and gentlemen, if the country assumes that this is only about the MOD. What the MOD is there to do is to generate and train forces for day one, night one of the war, and to sustain ourselves for long enough until it becomes an act of national endeavour and the nation's industry clicks in behind us. And so if we don't have that industrial capacity that can be called upon at time of war to sustain a war effort, we will fail. If we don't have resilience built into our critical national infrastructure and into our universities and companies that are developing sensitive IP, we will, we will cede our technological advantage to our adversaries. Um, if we don't have supply chains that are secure and access to the raw materials that make us sovereign. And then finally, if we have no concept of how we would do mass mobilization of the sort needed to go from a peacetime set of armed forces to a wartime set of armed forces, then we won't be ready to move fast enough when that time comes. That's not to say you need a million men and women 
under arms. But you have to at least, if you're going to be serious about having returned to an age of state-on-state -state competition with a peer adversary, you have to have some design for how in a reasonable time frame you would go from a set of peacetime armed forces to the sort of size of armed forces you would need in a moment of national endeavour. That all fits in to a new NATO narrative, a reinvigorated NATO that recognises exactly, as Liam said, that deterrence is not just around the absolute deterrent of a nuclear, uh, of a nuclear capability. It is about demonstrating your ability to get to somewhere quicker and in more meaningful mass and with greater technology and greater technology than your adversary. And NATO reinvigorated from what's happened in Ukraine over the last nine months has really closed with that in a way that I think is quite exciting. But NATO is not the only thing that matters now. The US have been clear with us again and again and again that they do not want the UK and France simply to hold the Euro-Atlantic to free up the US to go to the Pacific. They want their allies in the Pacific too, and so we must be ready to do that. Um, Fraser, you asked me very specifically about AI and automation. I suspect to tee up Palantir, so I'll finish with it um, so that you're good to go. Um, if there are people in the room who are nostalgic for the armed forces of yesteryear, who think that British hard power will be best achieved by being able to look out the window and see dozens of destroyers and hundreds of tanks and hundreds of fighter jets, I just say to you that I don't think that that is where the edge comes. Undoubtedly, we're going to need mass, but mass might look very different in the future to what it looked like in the past. It might be that you have lots of manned-unmanned pairing where you have a, 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 a mother platform, if you like, and then lots of automated stuff all around it. And then you, because that allows you to hide within that mass. The big catchphrase in the modern battle space is hide to survive, and if you're found, you're dead. So actually, being able to hide the platforms that matter in amongst lots of platforms that are disposable presents your adversary with a real challenge. But controlling a battle space of that complexity with hundreds and hundreds of uncrewed systems alongside crewed systems requires a data crunching ability that is absolutely beyond your imagination. And that's where I go back to that point earlier on, that I think that it's all about bringing to bear technological advantage, your ability to see through the fog of war, which is no longer a thing around sort of uh, radios and whatever else. The fog of war is now created by an overwhelming amount of data and being able to see through all of that to have a really good battle picture and to be able to act more quickly than your adversary. Right. Well, on the point of the fog of data, then, I'd like to bring in our, um, Louis Mosley, who runs Palantir UK and is buying the drinks this evening. So thank you for the gin, Louis. Really. Um, and you've, you've, you've recently, you were in Ukraine recently, weren't you? You met one of Zelensky's advisors on this. Um, well, I'm uh, yes. Uh, yes, no, no. I'm, I've been several times over the past mm -hmm. kind of six months, but met with the president um, back in May. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, as, as everyone has mentioned, the... I think to start maybe with the capability sure. question, um, what, what are the lessons we can draw from what we've seen in Ukraine? I think everyone would accept they've been remarkably successful with, on the face of it, very little conventional capability. Uh, why is that? What, are, what is it that we can learn for British Armed Forces? And to your point, Minister, about data, 
actually what they've been leveraging is very cheap, off-the-shelf commercial capabilities, whether those be satellites, whether those be drones. And they have been very successful in assembling those very quickly and bringing them to bear in, in the conflict. And what does that for us mean in terms of the next generation of capability? And I think another observation linked to this would be for the last 20 years, we have put boots on the ground around the world. The question is, over the next 20 years, will we? And are the conflicts that are going to emerge, as we've seen in Ukraine and, and perhaps elsewhere, ones that will be fought by our allies, in effect by proxies, uh, that we will want to support and will want to support very deeply, but it may be impossible uh, for us to become directly involved? And I think there's a very interesting question around what sort of capability then we need to develop that's perhaps used by us, but also in order to enable, uh, enable our allies. And I think uh, Ben Wallace has put it very well earlier today, I think, or maybe it was yesterday, that the game changer in Ukraine, from his point of view, has been a, a proliferation of precision, as he called it. So essentially the ability to target missiles very accurately over long distances or, you know, in the jargon, the, the sensor-to-shooter loop. And so that actually is, is, is what James was referring to. That is a data problem. It's, it's the how do you bring together your satellite imagery, your drone footage, your SIGINT, your intelligence. You put it to bear on a map, and then you're enab enabling those who are shooting in the front line or further back to be extremely accurate. And that completely changes the dynamic that, I mean... As Michael mentioned, you've got the Russians 20,000 shells a day, but they're losing, and the Ukrainians are winning. And so it's all about the precision and the targeting. And I think in that, there are a set of interesting lessons that we can learn. The experience of being in Ukraine, um, President Zelensky, to the deterrent point that you raised, Liam, um, he, his pitch was essentially... We're going to be a country surrounded by a neighbor that wants to wipe us off the map for the foreseeable future. We need to become the Israel of Europe. Like them, we have this constant existential threat around our borders. How has Israel survived? It's built this deterrent capability. It's done that through very, very smart nation-state allies and partnerships, but also through industrial partnerships. And I think that's where there's, again, another opportunity for us as a country and as a sector, um, as NATO allies, to come together and bring countries like Ukraine into our supply chain, into the technological fold, into interoperable standards that, again, make the, this challenge of how do you enable, a, in effect, an ally or proxy to fight the war for you that much more effective. So those are a few... Opening observations, Fraser. Fascinating. Thank you. Let's go straight over to questions. If you've got someone, put your hand up, and one of my colleagues will come. And okay, can we take? Um, yep, yeah, at the back there.